This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m. in Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. The idea for this show came from Jeff Goodell's new book, Heat. He's worried that people underestimate heat. You can't see it. You can't smell it. It comes up upon you furtively and suddenly you're in a bad way. Your body can't take it. One year I tried to sort of educate the public a bit on the signs of heat stress and so on and preparing for it, especially preparing elderly people for it. And I interviewed a paramedic. He just read me a long list of people he'd attended to that day who just hadn't realised what a killer heat wave can be. One of them was an 85-year-old man who'd collapsed on the golf course at midday on a 40-degree day. Well, it's easy to learn the lesson from that. But today I thought we'd look at um, animals, how heat stress affects animals and climate change in general. And I was inspired by Goodell's chapter called The Mosquito is My Vector. There's a lobby group called Veterinarians for Climate Action. So I spoke to Dr. Ron Glanville, who was formerly chief veterinarian in Queensland. He talks about livestock and vector-borne disease. And also to Dr. Michelle Marquardt, who sees bushfire-affected wildlife and pets expiring from heat in the Blue Mountains. It struck me that we are witnessing extinctions in a helpless way. Who will condemn Whitehaven Coal, Woodside and Exxon on behalf of the emperor penguins? These marvellous tall birds live in Antarctica where the male incubates the egg on his yellow flippers while the female goes fishing far out to sea and when she returns she can navigate through all the squawking to her own chick. Whole nature films were made about it but last year scientists say the ice melted before the chicks had their waterproof feathers on and they either drowned or froze to death in wet, soggy feathers. The Living Wonders court case, which we covered last week, was a massive effort to compel the Environment Minister to connect the dots between the gas and coal project she's approving and these living wonders like the emperor penguin that are losing out big time from the extra emissions. 
But that court case failed. So I think the next battle is when the EPBC bill is reformed towards Christmas time and Labor Party has promised that the bill will be debated then. And uh, I think a lot of groups will be getting ready to campaign for the climate trigger. Please contact me if you have any inside knowledge about that or if you would like to speak to about it on air, the climate trigger. Now let's hear from veterinarians for climate action. Dr. Ron Glanville is with us now to talk about diseases carried by mosquitoes and bats. He represents veterinarians for climate action and was formerly the chief veterinarian officer for Queensland. So welcome, Ron. First of all, tell us where you are and what sort of climate change you're observing there. Oh, Vivian, how are you? Uh, yes, I'm actually living, even though I spent most of my career in Queensland, I'm now living in Woodend in Victoria, uh, mainly because of family reasons. All my kids and grandkids are in Melbourne these days. So uh, I suppose I haven't really had a chance to uh, observe uh, climate change too much in in rural uh, Victoria. I haven't been here that that long. But um, what I do know from my work is that uh, a lot of insect distributions are changing. For example, Queensland fruit fly, which was always considered to be an exotic pest of Victoria, it's now pretty much here all the time, you know, along the uh, in the Sunraysia and down in the in the Yarra Valley as well. So it's causing lots of problems. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, I've been reading a new book called Heat, which I'd recommend to listeners. It's by Jeff Goodell. He has a whole chapter on mosquitoes and ticks and bat-borne disease. So how does climate change help these vectors to spread into new territory? Yeah, good question. Um, I actually spent a fair bit of my early career doing uh, research on cattle ticks that affect uh, you know, cattle, uh, particularly up in, in northern Australia. And uh, the thing you need to understand about these invertebrate, invertebrate animals that heat and temperature has a big impact on them and it's 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 quite complex um for example the eggs of a cattle tick don't uh, develop uh, once it gets below about 16 degrees and so if the length of the winter is long enough um, below 16 degrees well then they they don't develop over a long period of time so then the, the ticks will die out but as the climate um, increases we uh, get more areas above this threshold temperature so the effective length of the winter for those the, these invertebrates gets narrower, so they're able to to live and survive in uh, in 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 many more areas. So so they'll gradually move south in Australia. Well, I think most of us know about malaria in humans, but what other diseases are carried by mosquitoes and ticks, and how do they affect livestock? Sure. Um, well, the the uh, the cattle tick carries a, a, a disease uh, called uh, red, or well, it's commonly called red water. It's, um, it's a protozoan disease that uh, uh, affects livestock and particularly if ticks move into new areas where the animals, cattle haven't had exposure to those organisms, well, then you're likely to get large outbreaks of, uh, of tick fever. Um, that in the past that's happened out on the Darling Downs, for example, when ticks have moved into new areas, you get big crashes where lots of animals die all at once. But a more recent example is um, is Japanese encephalitis. We had a huge outbreak of Japanese encephalitis in Australia uh, last year, uh, which affected um, uh, a lot of piggeries. So 
previously we'd only ever seen Japanese encephalitis in northern uh, the north, northern uh, Cape York Peninsula and Torres Strait. Then all of a sudden last year we had outbreaks in Queensland, other parts of Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. And this really caught everyone by surprise. Um, and this disease is carried by, by insects and it caused huge production losses in piggeries uh, across Australia. Uh, we don't fully understand the reasons for this, but uh, but uh, I'm sure climate change is one of the factors we've got to consider here as as uh, as it gets warmer, insects uh, and particularly the the uh, mosquitoes that carry this disease, what they'll be, become more prevalent. Yeah, what other diseases are carried? Uh, carried by ticks and and um, and insects generally. We've got uh, quite a lot of what we call arbovirus diseases in Australia that are, are carried by insects. So we've got things like bovine ephemeral fever. We've got uh, blue tongue. Uh, disease. Um, we're very worried at the moment by a disease called lumpy skin disease that's up in Indonesia, and that's uh, transmitted by um, by biting insects, particularly uh, flies, but a number of other insect, insects uh, as well. Um, and if we go further uh, worldwide, there's uh, yeah, there, there are a wide range of diseases carried by these arboviruses. Um, uh, blue tongue disease that I, I mentioned, which uh, can be quite devastating for sheep, but spread rapidly in in Europe in re recent years, become more more prevalent. And uh, and uh, then there's uh, yeah, Rift Valley fever has expanded its uh, its uh, uh, whole range of where it is in in Africa in recent years. So there's there's a whole range of these diseases. Yeah. Well, while we're thinking about livestock, I'm shocked. You know, another part of climate change is is in the floods. And, you know, every time there's a flood, we've had recent ones in New South Wales this year, many sheep mm. and cattle die. But they're only a side story in the media. You know, it's just this side story. But it's big. It's massive numbers. And can you tell us some stories about the impact of heat waves, for example, on animals that are fenced in? Uh, yeah. Um, and this is only going to get worse. Uh, as we project uh, you know, the, the impacts of climate change in the future, there could be parts of northern Australia that virtually become uninhabitable for, uh, you know, for, for livestock <clears throat> like cattle. But as we know, um, one of the impacts of climate change is more extreme weather events. So we'll have have extreme heat waves, and and you can uh, really that can really affect animals. I remember, I recall, uh, just an example back in 1990, we had a. a um, a big heat event in a feedlot on the Darling Downs, and it killed, you know, I think it was around a thousand head of cattle. It was, you know, like a huge impact. And so we'll see more of that sort of thing happening. And as these extreme weather events happen, we'll see, as you mentioned, uh, flooding. And um, if you if you get these extreme floods, I mean, the animals have got nowhere to go, uh, particularly on 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 flat country. I spent some time uh, stationed in at Mount Isa in North Queensland earlier in my career, and. There's a lot of that country is quite um, quite flat in that southern Gulf, and uh, if you get big floods, the animals just don't have anywhere to go. And I remember one incident where there were you know, hundreds of cattle that just got uh, washed out into the Gulf of Carpentaria, uh, and and people lose lose uh, you know, hundreds of, of animals. Um, doesn't just affect livestock though; um, also affects our native wildlife. So there's been big events where hundreds of uh, and probably thousands of flying foxes have have uh, died in the past as well in, in extreme weather events. 
Yes, I've heard of them. Bats just falling out of the trees, just dropping like that. I've read historically too in the early colonies, yeah. there were talks of that. Exactly right, and that that becomes part of a broader sort of more complex story. You know, we know that in, since uh, 1994, we've seen uh, various cases of of Hendra virus in in horses and some in humans. So there's a uh, a couple of vets that I know have died from from Hendra virus, and that's quite a complex story. In that, um, there's been a lot of habitat destruction of flying foxes, and then when you also get extreme weather events like we've seen, um, it puts these populations under stress. and And when populations of animals are, are under stress, then we see them express viruses more, and then they're more likely to to transmit those viruses to uh, uh, to animals and then onto people. Yeah, and it puts a question. I mean, we we try to wipe out mosquitoes. I've been in countries where they at night you see a big van going down spraying some sort of pesticide for mosquitoes because they're frightened of dengue mm. fever. But we can't wipe out the bats. I once had a bat specialist on this program and I said to him, really showing my ignorance, you know, well, well, what are bats for? And he nearly jumped out of his chair and said, bats are pollinators. You know, exactly right. Bats are very important part out. of that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, bats are very important parts of our ecosystem. A lot of our native uh, uh, flora is, is pollinated by um, by fruit bats. And uh, people don't realise, even though we often see in the media people talking about plagues of fruit bats, there's actually a lot less of them now than there than there used to be. Um, the, the whole dynamics of those fruit bat populations has changed. So there used to be huge numbers of bats in individual colonies but much less colonies than there are, to ne are now but these days there are a lot more colonies with smaller numbers of bats in them because of the impacts of habitat destruction etc and uh, and so that uh, that's probably also led to why we're seeing you know more cases of of diseases uh, transmitted from these sorts of animals back to animals uh, back to livestock yeah, and, and people are so worried about these things that leap to humans, as we've seen through COVID and that mm. Hendra virus in the town of Queensland called Hendra was very yep. shocking that it jumped to horses and then to people. Mm. Um, uh, what the, to, to me, the main answer is less deforestation, like stop deforestation, reforest, create more habitat. What, what do you think the you know big-scale solutions are? Uh, that's exactly right. We've well, we've got to look at it in a, a holistic way. There's a term called One Health, which is about uh, taking into account, uh, you know, human health, animal health, environmental issues, etc., in a holistic way. And that's that's the only way to look at these issues these days. Because, uh, you know, if we look at new and emerging diseases worldwide um, over the last fifty years, probably seventy to eighty percent of new diseases have come out of out of uh, wild animals uh, and, and now infecting people and there's a whole heap of reasons why that happens um uh there you know we we do unusual things with animals we you know we you know we look at at um at uh at covid well you know there were uh wild animals being brought into wet markets in china all that that sort of thing we've got habitat destruction means that um and and the encroachment of human populations into traditional you know wildlife areas well then you've got more contact between humans and animals you've got uh, populations under stress as i said earlier um, animals are more likely to express viruses when they're under stress so it's it's a it's a quite a complex picture and so it needs to be looked at in that holistic way yeah
Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. Listening to the Climate Action Show, and Dr. Ron Glanville from Veterinarians for Climate Action is talking about livestock and how climate change is exposing them to new diseases. What are farmers doing to protect their animals, you know, the livestock, as we move into another El Nino year? This is really practical. We're talking about human protection at the moment, you know, cooling stations and, and taking care of the elderly in a heat wave. What what are farmers being advised? Well, well, farmers uh, traditionally have have had to live with droughts and and floods, and it's all about pre-planning, really. Um, you know, even going back to when I was a, a field officer in North Queensland, it was you know the 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 story always was if you haven't had your rains and you got and you got your pastures by by March, well then you need to start lightening off. Don't leave it too late. So it's it's really the same old story in terms of how you manage these things. Um, but it just means that farmers have to be more on the ball these days and they, these events are going to be more frequent. So, um, yeah, uh, farmers are very good at doing this, that that sort of planning. It's just they're going to have to do it more often, I think. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's a bit unpredictable. But, like, what about more shade? I, I often used to travel back and forth to Melbourne from Sydney and, honestly, on that train trip you see so many cattle clustered under one tree in a big paddock. Yeah. And why don't they put more trees in uh, that's a good point, and uh, I'm sure a lot of farmers are starting to think about that. I mean, the the old traditional shelter belts uh, still you still see them around in Victoria. It's something new for me, having spent most of my career in Queensland. But um, there's a whole movement out there, really called regenerative regenerative agriculture, where people are starting to uh, think more holistically about how to how to uh, manage their their farms, and and it's more than just shade. Um, certainly, shade's part of it. So. Um, so you know trees are, are very important but it's also how people manage pastures so that so that the um that we regenerate the soil more and incorporate more carbon into soil um through different practices such as uh, rotational grazing over long periods of time and i've, I've uh, read accounts of that how it can happen you know, be done on both small farms and even quite uh, large stations so uh, that's a very important part of of how farming can contribute to mitigation of climate change is to incorporate more carbon into the soils. Yeah. All right. Well, what do vets see that makes them keen to take climate action? Well, vets vets see a range of things. We see the impacts on on uh, wildlife through you know through our through fires. Um, you know, the estimates were. Um, uh, trying to remember what the figure was. It was three billion animals in the in the the 2019 fires were affected by um, uh, by the fires, either displaced or or, or killed. <clears throat> so we see those broad impacts, but we also see you know the spread of uh, more spread of diseases, more unpredictability in terms of the diseases we see, and then you see the direct effects of the heat on on both pets and and um and farmed animals so you know your, your pet dog on a hot day you know you really need to be careful 
how you manage your pet, make sure it has plenty of water, access to shade, all that sort of thing. So it's a huge range of impacts that we're, we're going to see as, and it's, it's only going to get worse as, as time goes on with climate change. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you have formed a lobby group because, you know, people listen to doctors and, and vets too, I think, and everybody loves their pet dog. So, you know, I think it's that voice that people go say, well, they're not going to tell me rubbish. <laughs> they, they see the real thing. Well, I hope that's the case, that's for sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, you've warned farmers about diseases like this Japanese encephalitis, even in cool Victoria, but what are the symptoms? Tell us about the symptoms that people might see of not only Japanese encephalitis, but these other vector-borne diseases. Oh, well, they're quite quite varied. So Japanese encephalitis, in, uh, it, it affects both people and pigs and horses, Um uh, in people, it can it causes uh, quite a severe neurological disease, so people can die from you know, encephalitis. Uh, in pigs, it's actually quite different. The the adult pigs, you don't see many signs at, at all. But what it does is um, pregnant sows either either abort or they have uh, deformed or mummif what they call mummified fetuses. So so the, the fetuses are all all born uh, or stillborn. Uh, so that's the impact of, of that disease. Um, uh, other other diseases such as um, uh, I mentioned uh, uh, cattle ticks and and red water. Well, that that uh, essentially affects their their blood and and uh, and they become very anemic and, and die. Uh, bovine ephemeral fever is it's traditionally called three day sickness where they get a fever and you know, muscular um, sort of weakness etc for a number of days but some animals take uh, take longer than that to, to get over it it's quite significant um, issues like uh, like blue tongue disease in sheep we've we've there are various strains of blue tongue disease and we're lucky those strains we currently have um, are fairly uh, uh, either mild or, or don't show signs but there are other other strains overseas that potentially we could get here that cause really severe disease in in in, in sheep and uh, and the you know, the uh, the classical sign is their their tongues uh, swell up and 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 go cyanotic so they they look blue yes. and uh, and the sheep could die but in, in Europe the uh, the strain they got in Europe which again is is new as as affected cattle as well wow well, look, if we finish, I'd like to ask you more a political question. We've just had a, the last mm. show I did was called The Living Wonders, and it was a court case where the, uh, it was also from Queensland, the Queensland, um, I get the environment, oh, no, it's a ecosec, it is the Environment mm. of Central Queensland um, Conservation Group, and they asked Tanya Plibersek to pay attention to the climate impacts on living wonders, and they had this whole trove of information on a website that you can click on wherever you are um you know click on a, an area a region and find what the climate impact of more coal and gas permissions so yeah. and and that's just been defeated in court last week where the court right. said that the minister wasn't required to actually take in climate impacts in her decisions about more coal and gas so it was a bit of a setback for them, but they won't, you know, they'll be pursuing it in a higher court, I think. But on the political level, what climate action are vets calling for? You know, especially among farmers who who would be very alert to the fall in production from these vector-borne diseases made so much worse in floods and heat waves. So what are you asking governments to do? 
Oh, it's quite simple, really. We need to stop uh, using fossil fuels. Um, there are, are a number of causes of climate change and people point to methane production in cattle that, that can be... Uh, yeah, that can certainly be mitigated, but it's not the major cause. You know, that if you want to tackle these things, you've got to tackle the major things first, and that is we've got to stop burning coal and gas. It's as simple as that. Uh, uh, we just can't afford to keep doing this. And if we don't, the, uh, and this is on a, on a global scale, if we don't stop using fossil fuels, the climate is still going to keep warming. And uh, it's as simple as that. So we need our... Uh, our whole society to get behind this, politicians to get behind it and really take strong action and develop new ways of you know, producing electricity, it's it's etc. That's happening, but it's happening too slowly at the moment. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So we've been talking to Dr. Ron Glanville in Woodend, um, and he is with the uh, no the vet veterinarians for climate action, and all that climate action is made more real by the symptoms that he's just told us about that we might not see, but if you're seeing that day to day, you you are on red alert, I'd say. So thanks very much, Dr. Glanville. Yeah, pleasure, Vivian. Vivian. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. And now I'd like to read from uh, Jeff Goodell's book, Heat. It's just a small description of the Hendra virus story. And you'll see he writes in a very journalistic way, page-turning sort of way, and you would probably really like this book. Here we go. In 1994, in the small town of Hendra, in the suburbs of Brisbane, Australia, a number of race horses at one of the stables in town started to get sick. No one knew why. The horses were disoriented, their faces swelled, a bloody froth poured out of their nostrils. One of them was seen banging its head against a concrete wall. Several horses collapsed and died. At about the same time, a man named Vic Rail, who worked at the stable, came down with what he thought was a flu. He ended up in intensive care, where his lungs filled up with fluid. Shortly afterwards, he died. 900 kilometres north of Brisbane, another man who lived and worked on a horse farm got a mysterious illness with seizures, convulsions and brain swelling before he died, 25 days after he was admitted to the hospital. Before the outbreaks ended, 70 horses were sick and seven humans died who had been in close contact with dead or ill horses. It took months of sleuthing before scientists figured out what had happened. Flying foxes, giant ones, likely congregated in fruit trees in a horse pasture. The big bats have been common in that part of Australia for 20 million years, but as the rainforests that were their natural habitat were fragmented by roads, logging and farms, and their food sources became more and more difficult to locate, Due to a changing climate, they moved into civilization. They roosted in the trees in the pasture, contaminating the grass with their urine, which was laced with a virus 
that nobody had ever seen before. It would become known as Hendra virus. It leapt to the horses, which had grazed on the grass, and then to the humans who cared for them. Luckily, Hendra virus was not highly transmissible and was quickly brought under control. This hypnotic music includes field recordings of birds in the northern rivers. It's called A Call to Nature by Flume. And if you click on the video in our Climate Show podcast notes, you will see a video by Jonathan Zenard. The most wonderful birds he's filmed in it, and some are panting, as our next guest will explain.
birds pant like dogs? That was the question which caught my eye. And we have Dr. Michelle Marquardt here from Veterinarians for Climate Action to answer it. Thanks, Michelle, for giving us this time from your busy practice. First of all, before you talk about wildlife, tell us where you are and what signs of climate change have you noticed up there? Uh, well, I'm in the Blue Mountains um, in New South Wales. Um, we moved up here probably about 15 years ago now. Um, I have to say I have noticed it's getting warmer. I have a cool climate garden and a lot of the fruit trees don't fruit as well anymore because they don't get their chill hours. Um, at work, we probably see more heat-stressed animals than we used to in the summertime. And we also have seen post all the bushfires that we've had over the last years, um, we've seen a certain amount of animals that have been badly burnt and um, damaged by that. So that's probably the most difficult thing that I've seen associated with climate change, yeah. Mm. Well, I must say I've never seen birds panting. That's why I liked your headline in that article you wrote, but they love to flap about in a bird bath. Tell us now how do birds manage in a serious heat wave it's quite fascinating well it's quite difficult for them actually i mean they're covered in feathers they don't have a lot of skin that they can radiate heat through and the other thing with losing heat is is that once the environment is hotter than you you can't radiate heat out into the environment because it's too hot so you have to the only way animals and birds can um reduce their body temperature when the temperature is higher than they are is by evaporating water. So that's really difficult for birds because they don't have a great big pink tongue to exchange water on and they can't sweat at all. So um, really all they can do is, is they can pant um, and they do lose water from that, but it's they have to then replace that water really quickly because they have really quick metabolisms and they're very small. Um, and the smaller the bird, the more easily it becomes heat stressed. So mm. it's really important for them to try and not get into that panting loop and to go somewhere cool if it's available. And unfortunately, with deforestation and so forth, there's less cool environments for them to escape to than they used to be. Yeah. Well, we're heading into a very hot summer now. And I wonder what can the average person do to help birds and wildlife survive? Well, providing. In your garden, for instance, a cool place for them to go. Bird baths are excellent. Anything that's cooler than they are lets them transfer heat away um, from themselves and into that thing. So having a nice, like a little shallow pond or, you know, a bird bath in your yard that you top up with cool water is really helpful. If you've got chickens in your backyard, then obviously giving them ice blocks in their water and um, cool things to eat is also, you know, very useful. Misting, if the bird, wild birds will go to it, if you do a fine spray, um, sprinklers on timers and so forth. But the biggest thing is shade, shade and cool areas. And the more trees you have, the more sh the temperature drops, really. Um, canopy cover is so important for keeping everything cool. We see these horrible heat islands in the city where there's no trees and they just get so hot. Um, and the birds just need somewhere cool to go. So if we can give them that, and if we can also help protect their forests, because they did a study in arid New South Wales, where they found that the small birds shelter in the bases of eucalypts, in the hollows of the really large eucalypts, and that's the coolest place for them to go. So if we protect those areas um, of natural bushland, particularly old-growth forests, uh, which have those sorts of regions, then um, that's the best thing that we can do to help birds mm -hmm. weather these events. 
Well, in your vet practice, what sort of wildlife is brought in during a heat wave um, and, and, and what do you do for them? Well, we get a certain amount of just birds that people have found by the sides of roads, really. Uh, and, and we get a certain amount of that anyway, even when it's not hot. But usually what we do is if we think a bird is heat stressed, um, we gently put it into some cool water and then we allow it to, we put it into a cool place and you can fan them too and that helps with evaporative cooling. So that's really um, the main thing that we do and then just supportive care really. Um, you know, we feed them and then we send them on to wise carers if it looks like they're going to be sort of able to cope. Um, unfortunately, it's very stressful for wildlife to come into a veterinary clinic. Um, birds, not so much, are not as bad, but some of the smaller marsupials, you know, the small possums and stuff, the stress of coming in, um, even though they need the treatment, is often what kills them, which is really sad. How do you know? They've done a lot of research. I'm not a, a wildlife expert by any means, but um, they've done some studies that show that possums, particularly things like ringtail possums and so forth, if they're in care for any length of time, they get bacterial imbalances in their guts um, mm -hmm. that can be fatal to them. So it's difficult to treat these sorts of animals well because the moment that you stress them, um, they start to do badly. Wow. Well, Angela Frimberger from Vets for Climate Action, uh, she said veterinarians are seeing an increased number of injured wild animals requiring treatment as a result of extreme weather such as bushfires and floods. And I dare say you've seen a lot of that. How do you deal with the stress yourself? Uh, well, I'm not sure any of the vets deal with it particularly well. You have to keep in mind that even though what you're doing is distressing, you're helping even if it's putting to sleep badly burned animals. And I find that very distressing, particularly if they've got pouched young that are too young to be raised by wise carers. You then have to euthanise them as well, even though they're not burnt, and that's really distressing. Um, but I think you just have to remind yourself that if you don't do it, no one will, and it's in the animal's best interest. But, yeah, it's stressful. It really is. And I wasn't one of those vets that just went out and euthanized animals in the field. One of my colleagues did that, and I just I couldn't get into the headspace to be able to do that. He just went out for multiple days and just euthanized animals all day, and it, it's really distressing, yeah. We interviewed someone back then, I remember, and also farmers doing that. It's just devastating and if you you think if you could only prevent it and people I think are a little bit fatalistic about climate change they think there's nothing we can do we can't prevent it go on with a high carbon lifestyle so we'll get to that in a minute but really some of it surely some of it can be prevented stressful for you and stressful for little creatures Angela Frimberger also said climate change compounds the pressure pressures that ecosystems are already under from land clearing, habitat fragmentation and invasive species. And these are all things that we can turn back a little bit or a lot. And she said they increase pressure on native species. Um, Australia has one of the highest extinction rates in the world. Um, she called on Tanya Plibersek, the Environment Minister for Investment and Coordination to match the scale of the biodiversity challenge. Do you think your lobby group, you know, Veterinarians for Climate Action, is being heard in Parliament? Uh, look, I think I would like to think so. 
Um, I think it's very hard to be heard. Um, I have a friend who works in the same sphere but for the medical association and she has a lot more access to higher level people and she's still struggling to be heard and coming up against a lot of walls from what I've heard from her. I think my feeling is, is that being fatalistic about it isn't helpful. I have to say I'm pessimistic about the future of the planet, but I want to look my children in the eye and said I sat there and did nothing while the world was destroyed around us. I think if everyone does their little bit everywhere, then we can all make a big difference. But, I mean, I understand a lot of people are just like, no, my life's too stressful, it's too difficult, I can't do that. It doesn't matter what we do because China will destroy the world or Russia will keep burning fossil fuels or whatever, you know. it's. I mean, I don't think that's an argument. I think we all need to take a bit of ownership because we all live this high-carbon lifestyle mm. and we've all benefited from it. Mm. Now, the human race would not be where it was if we hadn't burnt all that carbon. I mm. We needed energy and we took it. Now, now we have to fix it. So. Yeah. Well, I totally agree with you. And and I think uh, Tanya Plibersek is getting a lot of um, pressure from all sectors and you're just one more of those sectors. And I think it's really great because people believe in doctors and vets and, you know, and scientists in general. They know that they're not telling them rubbish, but um, it's very hard to hear that message because it implies a lot of action on parliamentarians' part and businesses' part. Well, I'd like to talk about pet animals now. Um, here are some headlines. Heatwave, dog dies in hot car, or RSPCA oh. warns um, dog uh, about after dog dies in heatwave. These separate headlines. You know, what are the symptoms now of heat exhaustion in dogs? I live in Sydney and I see a lot of dogs that look like they should really belong in the Arctic. You know, they're so furry, so big, <laughs> panting themselves to you know, really to get through yeah. the day on a walk. It's not a heatwave even. Um, so what are the symptoms of heat exhaustion in a dog? And is it always because they lack water? Well, water helps. But, I mean, if you put anything in a hot enough environment like a car, nobody should put a dog in a car on a hot day, even with the windows down, even in the shade, just shouldn't happen. I don't think people realise once temperatures hit over 40 degrees how quickly biological systems don't cope with that unless they can cool themselves down. So um, generally the first thing people notice is um, a lot of panting. You know, they'll pant really hard. They might drool too. Um, they become very lethargic and they stop eating. Um, heat makes even native animals stop eating, which is another whole separate problematic thing. But dogs and cats, their appetite will go away. They'll become lethargic. They may get muscle tremors um, and they may collapse in a heap. Sometimes they'll vomit. Um, but the thing that people most notice is the panting. So if your dog won't move and is panting really hard, you really need to wet them down with cold towels and fan them and put them into a cool place to help them get their body temperature down. They've only got that tongue. That's all they've got. It's yeah. really difficult. Yeah. Uh, I I'm only sort of dimly aware of it myself. It's all on that tongue. You look at their whole body. They're not sweating like us. So, they can sweat through their paws a little bit, but somehow I don't think that makes a great deal of difference. <laughs> well, I'm glad you. that's something I hope the listeners can all take note of what you said there. That's very practical. Um, the other vet on this program I spoke to this morning, we talked about, you know, vector-borne disease and cattle and big, big animals like that. But he said to ask you, um, how is 
heartworm in dogs affected by hotter conditions? And my question is, well, what can we do about it? Well, I can't say I am the world's expert on heartworm, given that we're not an endemic heartworm up area up in the Blue Mountains. However, that is because we used to have a certain amount of days below seven degrees, which stopped the parasite from overwintering in our mosquito population. So I suspect that with climate change, we will become an endemic heartworm area um, because it's completely linked to mosquitoes. So if you've got the mosquitoes to act as vectors, they're an essential part of the heartworm life cycle. So a, a mosquito has to bite an infected dog and then the parasite goes through one of its life changes within that mosquito and then the mosquito bites another dog and that's how the infection happens. So if you've got that mosquito population which contains that parasite, then you're going to have heartworm. So as it gets warmer and we get more mosquitoes and less days under seven degrees, then, yeah, we're going to have problems, unfortunately. It's going to spread and we will get resistance to all the products that we use um, we've been very happy for a long time with very effective products against heartworm. When I graduated, well, when I was at university, every dog we dissected had heartworm. Now I think I've seen two cases in 20 years. So, you know, it. but if we get resistance to the chemicals that we're using to control it and lots more mosquitoes, we could have problems again. Wow, that's very interesting. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to The Climate Action Show and Dr Michelle Marcutt from Veterinarians for Climate Action is talking about the animals she sees in her clinic. What about cats? After the last bushfire, I know feral cats. I saw many incriminating photos of feral cats looking so guilty in a burnt-out bushland eating some little tiny marsupial. They took advantage of these vulnerable creatures, which had nowhere to hide. What do you say to cat owners about climate action? Because it's okay to have a pet cat, but a lot of them are eating a lot of the tiny creatures, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Look, cats is also a very complicated problem. I mean, there's certainly an argument for all cats being indoor cats and all cats being in runs. Um, They kill a lot of wildlife, unfortunately. I confess my cat goes outside. He goes outside with a very loud bell on and he comes in at three o'clock in the afternoon and he stays in all night. Um, He's done that his whole life. If I tried to stop him now, I think it would be a bit of a disaster. Um, But... Yeah, look, I think feral, well, cats really don't have a place in the Australian bush. Um, and if you look at the places where they've reintroduced native mammals effectively, like I don't know if you know about the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, they buy these big properties and they fence them, they remove all the feral predators and then they reintroduce all the species. That's what it takes, unfortunately. You've got to hunt down every single last cat and get rid of them, every last fox. And, I mean, it's... It's not something that's going to happen in most national parks, unfortunately. So unless they find some virus or whatever that will sterilise feral cats, Mm. and I think that there are things in the wind to do with that, um, then we're going to have a feral cat problem that's going to be very hard to fix, unfortunately. Okay. So what's your advice to people just in cities who own cats? Just keep them indoors at night. Is that the best thing? 
Well, start with keeping them indoors at night, yes. Realistically, they should be indoors all the time, and I understand that's just not practical for some people and some cats. Um, but, yeah, they no cat should be out at night ever, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, they'll still catch lizards and stuff during the day, but you'll stop a lot of killing if you keep them in at night, definitely. Okay. You can right. use cat bibs too. There's bibs you can put around their necks that stop them from being able to hunt things effectively. Oh. So. What, it makes them look silly. <laughs> it makes them look really, really silly, but apparently it's really effective and it doesn't interfere with what they do. So yeah. a cat bib, if your cat will keep it on, my cat's very good at removing things like that. Um, <laughs> but they, they are very effective in stopping cats from um, catching things. Oh, that's another very good practical suggestion. I hope listeners, yeah, this is not high tech. <laughs> and your cat might not like you for making it look so silly, but if it stops it, grabbing so it's just a noise it does it can't can't hunt effectively it's, it's a it's a physical barrier between um the animal and the cat's claws because it hangs down in front and mm. when they go and jump forward it interferes with their ability to catch things oh, they're quite clever. big clever <laughs> look i think many people don't really want to know about climate change i've been doing this show for 12 years and i meet a lot of people who kind of have their fingers in their ear when i'm talking about it and I think these people however do love their pets and I looked it up today Australians apparently spend 20.5 billion dollars on dogs and 10.2 billion on cats and that's mostly for food and visiting the vet according to a survey they did called pets and the pandemic when pet owners shot the ship shot up but how do you have a conversation people might know that you're part of Vets for Climate Action, how do you have a conversation connecting the climate action, such as no new coal and gas and all of those kind of important things, stop deforestation? How can you speak to people um, with the well-being of pets included in that? Because eventually those pets will accompany us into those heatwave days and those pets will accompany us into the depleted food and the, you know, the massive confronting reality of two degrees of warming um have, yeah. have you talked to people like that do you get through to them i don't have those conversations with people to tell you the truth because if they if people aren't going to do it for their own children i'm not convinced that they will do it for anyone to tell you the truth mm. i my feeling is is that lecturing people about climate change and how horrible it's going to be. When I have discussed it with people, they either flatly deny it and say, no, we'll find a way of fixing it. You know, technology is wonderful. We'll suck all the carbon out of the atmosphere. Why bother worrying about it now? Or they just don't want to hear it. And look, I don't even want to hear it to tell you the truth. It's depressing. You know, knowing what knowing what's coming is hugely depressing. And I really try to hold out hope that we will find technology to fix it because I think we're at the point now where that is what's going to be required. But I, my feeling is, is that the best way to make people think about it is to engage them in something that they are interested in and then just remind them of the climate things that sit behind it. And that article that I did for the Canberra Times about the birds I mean, that really was designed to be an interesting article with a reminder at the end, um, sort of to sneak up on people and say, <laughs> hey, you know, <laughs> it's getting warmer. Maybe we should all do a little bit about it. But I, I really don't think that preaching to people and trying to convince them that about the doom that's on the horizon is at all helpful. They just stick their heads further into the sand. Um, 
And they will happily look after their pets in a heat wave. They'll do everything that I tell them to do to keep their dogs and cats safe. But as I said, if they're not going to change their habits to save the world for their children, um, well, I don't can't think of any bigger motivator than that as a parent. Um, if people aren't willing to do it for that, then there's nothing I can say to them, really, unfortunately. Sounds yeah. pessimistic, I know. I don't think it's pessimistic. I think it's just something we... I don't dare have those conversations either with my friends because I know where they stand on things. But but I just think it's such a bizarre thing that we, we're spending like this $30 billion on that. We spend $4.5 billion on foreign aid, you know, and the, the that doesn't explain love. You know, $30 billion doesn't equal love, but it does show a huge amount of attention. And if people could see it starkly that that this this is so disconnected from the reality that we're creating by the high carb even keeping your pet at home and having your air conditioning on all day is terribly terrible for the universe or the bioverse but um i don't know i don't i don't either have those conversations but i think in with the credibility of a, of a scientist i think you might be cutting through if you talk wait if you can well, read a talk or read an article <laughs> i mean i'll i'll have so i'll say to people you know get some solar panels on people who I know can afford it. A lot of people can't afford mm. that sort of stuff at the moment with the cost of living. And they'll say, oh, no, I've done the cost-benefit analysis and I don't think that it's really well. And just, you don't do it for the cost-benefit analysis. You do it so you can run your air conditioning without creating any carbon, you know. Um, but people, when people need to pay money, that's it. It's like I say to people, why don't you green fleet your car? You know, it's a fantastic organisation and they're reforesting. They were reforesting the snowy mountains the last time I looked. And, you know, it doesn't cost that much. It costs like $80 a year and it's tax deductible to offset the carbon from your car. People won't even do that, you know, and it's depressing, really. <laughs> I mean, some people will, obviously. Some people care, but it's very, very hard to convince people. And I think, I don't know. I remember when I was growing up, there always seemed to be a disaster on the horizon. There was going to be nuclear war and then there was the Y2K bug and, yeah. and the world kept wanting to end. And I swore to myself in my 20s, I wasn't going to believe any end of the world scenarios anymore because this didn't happen. But the truth is that this one looks like it really is going to happen. But maybe some people are just exhausted by it all and, and they just don't believe in it because it's not mm. right in front of them. And mm. people adapt. We adapt so quickly. You know, those horrible bushfires, those billions of animals that were incinerated, Those the sky was brown in Sydney, you couldn't see the sun. People have forgotten it all already. It's They've adapted to losing their houses every two years in a flood. It all seems normal now. I, you know, and we barely remember what it was like when the weather was normal and spring mm. came and was an even temperature. And, I mean, it's all people adapt so quickly they're just going to accept it a little bit at a time and we're going to be in the middle of a disaster and and look around and go oh actually um, <laughs> yeah but you can't forget those burnt animals people brought you and many of those people won't forget that they brought that little you know burnt koala or the possum with the baby inside and and the doctor i spoke to this morning said look you can't see it but Flying foxes, you know, their numbers are dwindling. And we can't see these things, diminution in populations, but that's why I'm asking you to speak. And, and the big audience that's listening, I'm asking you to listen, audience, and I'm asking Tanya Plibus <laughs> to listen as well, because these things aren't rocket science. I don't think some of them, you know, controlling feral cats start with that invasive species. 
but you know deforestation stop that these are the on the ground things we can do the bigger um technologies and all that they're not proven those things sucking the car they're not doable i mean they've got technology now to pull carbon out of the air and they solidify it in in, underground but it's it's phenomenally expensive and it's so slow and we produce so much The big, big thing is just to stop producing more, you know. Mm. If we can stop producing more and then if we can replant forests, sink carbon into forests, you know, create. I I was reading an article where they were like, you know, animals when they're hot, marsupials when they're hot, they don't eat as much. We need to replant these forests with trees with high nutritional value so Mm. that if the animals aren't eating so much that they can eat enough. Or things like greater gliders that get their, their liquid from their from their diet you know they don't drink a great deal you know those animals when they don't eat enough then they're in real trouble i mean we need to be really careful with how we we recreate our environment to protect the wildlife for the weather that is coming we need to work out cool microclimates and we need to preserve our old growth forests with its lovely big shady cool trees and Mm. we need to be very careful with what we replant um, just to make sure that we optimise these species' chance of survival. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's well, an well awfully big job. <laughs> I'd like to thank you. Uh, I think Veterinarians for Climate Action has loads of potential as a lobby group and for community education, and people trust you. And in a crisis, we're so grateful to you that someone can rescue those dehydrated and traumatised little creatures, struggle out of a disaster. So speak to the listeners about how they can support you and this organisation. Well, I'm, you can donate because that helps us um, get our climate care programs going. We've got a website that you can go to for Vets for Climate Action. But what I'd personally really like to see is just people be more mindful of the environment and get involved. You know, if everyone got involved and everyone petitioned the government and everyone sort of took the time to do even a small thing we could make such a difference there's so many of us and you know and um i think the truth is the trick is not to give up hope even though it's so tempting to i think even if if you try at least you've got the peace of mind knowing that you tried i think that's really important and if we all try then i think we can actually make a big difference true all right, thank you very much. We've been speaking to veterinarian Dr. Michelle Marquardt in the Blue Mountains, and she's with a group called Veterinarians Climate Action. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. Thank you to the two vets for climate action, Dr. Ron Glanville and Dr. Michelle Marquardt. They've given us plenty of practical advice about protecting our pets and local wildlife, as well as protecting ourselves from mosquitoes and ticks. But the biggest advice we heard was to cut down our high carbon lifestyle and put up solar panels and stop new coal and gas projects in Australia, which which is one of the world's biggest exporters of climate change. Please check the Climate Action 3CR podcast page so you can see the panting birds in the beautiful video for Flume's song, A Call to Nature. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal.
Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.